listening to the Futures Podcast with me, Luke Robert Mason. On this episode, I speak to author Jeremy Lent. What really leads to engagement is realizing that nothing is inevitable, that every step, every action each of us takes is part of this unfolding future. Jeremy shed his insights into the importance of developing alternatives to the modern Western worldview, how recognizing our deep interconnectedness to all life could lead towards a new ecological civilization, and how integrating science and traditional wisdom might help us avoid the global crises threatening humanity. Jeremy, your new book, The Web of Meaning, attempts to problematize the dogmatic Western worldview of reductionist mechanistic materialism. So for those who may not know, what is this worldview and how has it come to define the 21st century? Yeah, well, you know, worldviews are such interesting things in themselves because we tend to have a worldview without even realizing that we actually have it. It's, it's like sort of a, the lens through which we see everything. And when we're used to seeing it all the time, we just think that's reality. It's a little bit like a fish swimming in water and the, the fish will never know it's in water because that's all it knows. And so what's so important is to actually try to understand what it is about our worldview that is conditioning what we're seeing. So to your point, like my book looks a lot at what this Western worldview is actually telling us. There are some basic fundamental assumptions it makes about the world that are not just dangerous, but actually plain wrong. Like it says that nature is a machine. It says that nature is selfish and we're driven by selfish genes, that humans are selfish and that humans are absolute individuals separate from everything else around us. All of these things have been shown by modern science to be wrong, but we take for granted and we think that's scientific, every one of those statements that I just said. Well, well, it does feel that way. It feels as though it's the it's the environment that we're swimming in. We're the fish that doesn't know that it's in water, living in this environment of its own creation. And that environment is one of technological, empowered capitalism in many ways, shapes and forms. And it, it really does infiltrate every aspect of our reality, as you've said there. And, and one of the ways it does that is through our language. So, Jeremy, what are some of those metaphors that we're living by and how does that create a feedback loop? into our perception of mm. what reality is. Yeah, I'm glad you, you asked the question about metaphors, because metaphors really are really some of these fundamental hidden ways in which that lens through which we see the world gets kind of structured mm -hmm. that we're not even aware of. We tend to think of metaphors as some sort of thing in, in a poem, you know, like some little analogy to the sun rising, like a host of dancers or whatever. Actually, metaphors are what we use as cognitive linguists have shown. We use them every, almost every sentence that we we actually state, we use metaphors to come up with abstract conceptions of the world from our physical bodies as scaffold. So if I say to you something like, oh, I, um, yeah, she gave me a warm smile yesterday. I'm using these metaphors of, she didn't give me a smile. I was just somebody that I was relating to. And it wasn't a warm smile. The temperature didn't increase when she smiled. But these are the ways in which we actually conceive of the world. And then when we look at the metaphors we use in our worldview, the foundational ones often have to do with the sense of what nature is, what the universe is, mm -hmm. and who humans are in relation to them. And 
I'd say in my previous book, The Patterning Instinct, I looked at these different ways in which different worldviews have fundamentally different metaphors of nature. So nomadic hunter-gatherers, and as humans, we spent 95% of our species history in that form. They saw nature as like a giving mother and father, like a giving parent. Mm -hmm. In East Asia, the view of nature is more like a harmonic web of life, where almost like if you're walking in a forest and you see a web and you know that every little drop undulates through the web. They had that sense of that's what nature and that's what life is actually about. We in the West developed this metaphor of nature as a machine, mm. which became dominant during the scientific revolution in the 17th century in Europe, but it, it had underpinnings all the way through in early Christianity and the ancient Greeks. But that's how we now understand the world. And from that metaphor, we get to see humans as fundamentally different from the rest of the natural world. And we get to see the rest of nature is really not having subjectivity. So if they're kind of machines, like Descartes was one of the people who established that metaphor, and he'd be fine with doing vivisection on dogs. Mm. And if they were screaming in pain, he'd say, oh, don't, don't worry about the scream. It's just like if you play a musical instrument. It's just kind of twanging sounds, but there's no actual feeling there. So that's the kind of foundation for the way in which humans now view the rest of the world. And even our own bodies we view as kind of some sort of housing for this kind of essence of our true identity. I mean, I mean, we hear it in everyday language. When we think of thinking, we think of the cogs turning in our mind. Or right. uh, today with computer metaphors, it's really we're processing ideas. And the only thing that processes anything is the RAM in a, a computer. Right. So how do those change how we show up in reality. But by seeing nature as this complex machine, how has that then established the relationship that human beings have with nature? Yeah, well, you know, you can almost start with the ways in which we relate to ourselves, mm -hmm. because of course, we are nature. Um, we have 40 trillion cells in each of our bodies, not to mention the other trillions of cells that are bacteria that kind of share our bodies along with us. Mm -hmm. And we are nature, we are part of the natural world. But in this Western sort of Cartesian way of thinking about things, each of us tends to believe that I, the I in me, that sort of essence that we sort of think is somewhere in our sort of forehead, around where our prefrontal cortex is kind of thing, that that I, that conceptual thinking is separate from our bodies. So for starters, we just see our bodies oftentimes as these machines and we need to keep well running. And even people who try to become more embodied and, and recognize that, oh, I need to care about my body, they still think of their bodies as this kind of thing that's separate from them that you, they're sort of housed in. Um, and of course, that leads to these kind of somewhat crazed implications of somebody like Raymond Kurzweil, a senior Google executive, who actually believes that with a rising computing power, at some point, he and others will be able to upload their brains, upload their minds into the cloud and sort of download themselves into another body and hit this kind of immortal singularity, which is a category error, mm -hmm. because actually our minds don't exist apart from the neurons and the actual physical actual materiality 
reality of our embodied existence. So that's one way in which we go sort of so funky in this way. But then we expand that out to the rest of the living earth. So oftentimes people will look at climate breakdown as like an engineering problem. There's this famous quote from Rex Tillerson, the ex-CEO of ExxonMobil, who actually says, I see climate change ultimately as an engineering problem, which means it has engineering solutions, which of course leads people to come up to ideas like geoengineering, to just try to completely engineer our own Earth's climate, but not look at the systems that we put in place that are destroying life, but saying, well, the systems are fine. Let's just kind of fix this problem that's gotten created, that the climate is not doing what we want it to do. And that leads everywhere through the natural world. We think it's fine to take you know, tropical forests that have been there for millions of years, mm. raise them, cut them down, and put like monocrop palm oil plantations. We think it's fine to put animals in factory farms, tens of billions of animals a year, basically, um, who have subjectivity, feelings just like we do, are tortured essentially until they're killed at a young age just for us to be able to have sort of cheap meat that we go and buy in the supermarket. These are all the ways in which that separation from nature leads to fundamental ways in which our our civilization acts. I mean, it all comes back down to what is the human in the 21st century? And, and there's a couple of arguments for who we collectively are. Some see us as, as risen animals, as hyper-intelligent animals, and others see us as fallen gods. So how do we contend with our relationship with, I guess, ourselves before we even have to deal with nature and everything else out there? One of the things that I lay out in this book is recognizing that we do, as humans, have this kind of a split consciousness. Mm -hmm. So for, for starters, it's good to recognize that. There is something that does make us different from other animals, even though I said, you know, we are life, we do, that's what we are. But we also do have this difference. And even the early Taoists, thousands of years ago, recognized this, that they looked at the rest of the world acting effortlessly. They called that Wu Wei, which is like effortless mm -hmm. action. And they said, humans actually have a different way of relating. We act very purposively, which they call yue, which is the opposite, like purposive action. And that purposive nature is what is mediated by our prefrontal cortex, which has us think symbolically, conceptually. And there is something that does make humans different, as far as we know, from pretty much any other mammal out there, which is that symbolic thinking. That's led to this split consciousness, where we have this animate way of relating to things just like any other mammal. We feel we want warmth and all the different feelings we have. And we have this conceptual way of thinking. So in the book, I suggest there's a possibility for what I call an integrated consciousness, mm -hmm. which is not just identifying with that symbolic way of thinking, the way that Descartes said, you know, I think, therefore I am. Like, me, like the very notion of identity in the Western way of thinking is that conceptual consciousness. But we don't have to give up on that or think of that as something bad, but rather use that ability to integrate with that animate being of our own lives and actually use that to also recognize our deep connection with all of life around us. And that integrative consciousness could, in my mind, lead to a more integrative way of humans relating to the non-human nature on the living earth all around us.
Well, why then, Jeremy, is an integrated consciousness so important? Because surely, and to fight for Western culture just for a second here, surely we started thinking this way for a reason. It gave us the ability to develop technologies and, and science. But have we, I guess, gone too far? Are we relying too heavily on, as you say, one side of our consciousness? Yeah, I think that that's right. I definitely don't want to come across as saying that there's something wrong with our scientific way of thinking uh-huh. or with that aspect of human cognition. And you know, what's interesting, if we look historically, like why did the scientific revolution, this foundational transformational change in human thinking, mm-hmm. why did it happen when and where it did in Europe around that time? And it's not that we started to think that way in order for science to happen, but it's kind of the other way around, really, in the sense that there was this dualistic way of thinking in Europe, all the way from the ancient Greeks and incorporated in actual traditional Christian thought that separated this sort of, saw this kind of split human being, reason separated from the body, reason separated from emotions. And actually those scientific thinkers in the 17th century, like Descartes, Galileo, Newton, any of them, they thought they were performing God's work using reason that God gave to understand this machine of life that God had put uh, all around us. So they, they saw themselves as doing something that was actually profoundly religious, but it was that split way of thinking that did lead to the scientific revolution and all the wonders of technology that we can all appreciate so much totally transform the quality of life for humans on earth. But to your point, this has led to a huge imbalance. And at this point, really, our whole global consciousness is dominated by that one way of thinking, that thinking of separation. And what I'm arguing in the book is that an integrated consciousness would actually rebalance, not by giving up or jettisoning all the benefits of what our scientific last few centuries have given us, but actually turn around and start to say, how can we use that technology, use that power to actually integrate with nature in a symbiotic way of relating rather than use it to sort of conquer nature Uh as the folks of the scientific revolution saw it. In that case, what sort of indigenous or Eastern or historic worldviews should we begin to integrate into our current Western dominator mindset. Mm. Yeah, well, what we find is that when we look outside of this modern Western worldview, which even though I say Western, Mm -hmm. because through colonialism, it has now become a global worldview. And it's the worldview that whether you're in Mumbai or um, anywhere in the world, you sort of have to incorporate if you want to be sort of successful in the world that is dominated by this way of thinking. It's with Western in its provenance, but it's not Western anymore in terms of how it's so pervasive. Mm -hmm. But if we look at other indigenous cultures or other ways of making sense of the world outside of that sort of Western history, we see things like Buddhism, Taoism, or Confucianism. And every one of these other ways of looking at the world focuses a lot more on the connectivity between things. Mm. Indigenous viewpoints all around the world, not just in one place, but basically any 
true indigenous culture looks at the rest of nature as as relatives based on that metaphor we were talking before of nature ultimately being a giving mother and father so as a result of that all living beings are our relatives they see the connections rather than seeing humans as being essentially separate and in buddhism and taoism we learn different ways of relating to ourselves in the world, not so much as fixed entities, absolutely separate from everything else around us, but it's actually our relationship with things are what actually make us who we are, rather than some sort of fuzzy thing that takes away our identity. Listening to you speak there, it really feels like this sort of mindset change requires a new understanding first of self, or at least I. And I know those two things uh, sit in, uh, I guess, conflict and well not just conflict but also in uh, in relationship with each other because we've got to a stage it feels whereby we're so focused on the individual you know i i i my selfies iphones you know there's ways of expressing you know, oneself as opposed to expressing the i and could you tell me a little bit more about that nuanced difference in, between i and self and why it's so important for the sort of mindset change that you're talking about Yeah, well, we were talking before about this sort of split human consciousness. Mm -hmm. And again, the field of cognitive linguistics shows how clearly that actually can be seen in every one of us when we just simply look at the way we use these words, like I and myself. Mm -hmm. Like I might sort of say, be having a conversation with you about something I did and say, God, I was really angry with myself. I hated myself for doing that. And I just can keep going. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. But if somebody were actually listening to this fresh, they'd say, this is strange. This is just one person talking. And yet there's this relationship going on. There's the I that hates (laughs) the self for having done this. And then I I might say, "Um, I went to this dance yesterday, I really found myself in the dance. And uh-huh. so have, have I lost myself? Like what's going on in this I and self relationship? So I explore that in the book. And that actually, that is just this simple way of recognizing that split we have within ourselves. There's this I, which is this kind of fixed conceptual way of perceiving ourselves. And I have a story, like I will say that I was this and I'm planning to do this and that. And the I actually relates a lot to the left hemisphere of our brain, which is sometimes called the left hemisphere interpreter. It sort of makes a story out of everything. It fixes things and tries to make sense out of the whole thing. Now, the self, on the other hand, is something that's kind of instantiated every moment. You know, I might be having feelings of warmth or hunger or excitement or every moment to moment I am noticing, or oftentimes I won't even notice that myself is in this way or that way until the self puts up a screen saying, oh, I really need to take a pee. And then the I will notice that the self has. So this is I and self going on. Uh-huh in this side of dichotomy. But what our Western culture does a lot is it reifies that I. And through things like social media or just consumer advertising, in fact, our whole economic system is designed to say to the I, like, you deserve something better. Your status is all important. Mm -hmm. It kind of keeps us on what's called by some social psychologists, the hedonic treadmill. Uh It's like there's this treadmill, but once we get on it, the hedonia is not so much about just hedonistic pleasure, but it's more this need to continually make that I feel a bit better about life. Like, oh, I feel a bit better about myself or my status, or I buy this new toy 
joy and now I feel better about things. But then as soon as we get to that place, the treadmill pushes us along and we want that next thing and that next thing. Mm. It's a process that Buddhism actually studies intensively. In Buddhism, there's this term dukkha, which refers to the suffering that comes from always moving away from oneself, never being content with that present moment, always wanting more. And that's actually the very basis of our Western global consumer culture. So we live in a culture that is designed to basically keep us perpetually dissatisfied with our present moment in order that we'll spend more and work harder to be part of this kind of growth-based economic culture. Well, you mentioned Ray Kurzweil briefly there, who has the ambition to upload his, I guess, not just mind, but his self. And it does feel like those sorts of technological imaginings of consciousness in some other substrate are the eye trying to preserve the self. And as you mentioned, they're, they're, they're metaphor issues there because essentially the self isn't you. It's just purely the the mediated expression of who the I thinks the self is. You know, these things are eventually, if they ever get to the point where they could at least capture some of the things that are happening in the brain, you're just going to get this weird zombie-esque expression of brain signals with zero consciousness there. And, and a lot of those guys justify that by going, well, you know, we don't know how consciousness will emerge amongst the machines. And <laughs> you go, well, right. maybe it won't, maybe it won't at, at all. And that becomes a highly problematic issue when we think about where mind is or where consciousness mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is because these machine metaphors have put us in a situation whereby a lot of our modern science is assuming that whatever consciousness is, is a byproduct of the human brain, that mm -hmm. the brain, this three pounds of gray gloop is a computer mm -hmm. and whatever consciousness is, is some form of software process. It assumes that it's an emergent property of a, of the biological entity of the brain, but it may not actually be that way. Yes. It, it may actually be something completely different, mm -hmm. couldn't it, Jeremy? Yeah. I think, I think you're moving into very, very important important territory. And in, in fact, I, I do explore this a little bit in the book. And I use it as an example, a book written by a really top quality scientist called Max Tegmark, yeah. an incredible mathematician. Yeah. And he, he writes this book called Life 3.0. Mm -hmm. And his way of looking at the history of life on earth is that you had life 1.0, which was life before humans emerged. This just sort of life doing its kind of boring stuff and <laughs> just uh, making ecosystems, etc. Then humans emerge. And with our self-awareness, that split consciousness we've been exploring, that's life 2.0. That's this whole different upgrade in life. To his credit, he's not doing a silly Raymond Kurzweil type thing. He's actually trying to really explore what the implications of this are with, I think, very deep intentions. So th this is not a criticism of him and what he's trying to do. But his exploration of life 3.0 is what happens when consciousness mm. uh, becomes super intelligence, essentially. And then it can upgrade itself so that it no longer needs this kind of human body for whatever comes next after that. To my point, though, is I, I think that there is this category error taking place between life and consciousness. Mm. And I think what we can now understand from you know, deep studies in neuroscience and systems biology is that consciousness 
can be understood as something that arises from the way the complex systems interact. And it is something where you can even measure it according to this very, I think, very effective integrated information theory of consciousness, which actually looks at consciousness as being what is there that is in the system, the information in the system over and above the bare minimum needed for the system to just relate to each other? What is something extra that arises? But the point is that consciousness itself can actually be substrate independent, just like Max Tegmark was talking Mm. about. There is a potential for this extra level of coherent information to arise from a system. And then you could actually change the substrate, the actual physical stuff, and that consciousness could potentially still be there. Life is different from that. Life actually is a substrate of the consciousness as we know it. And in fact, there's many philosophers of biology who show that life itself actually can't exist without consciousness. As soon as you have any life form, no matter how simple, a single cell, there is a very significant layer of consciousness arising from that. Every cell wants to live more. It wants to perpetuate itself. It knows what is in it versus what is outside of it. Mm. It has very actually sophisticated understandings of reality. So the thing is, when you conflate life and consciousness without realizing you're doing that, all kinds of difficult things happen. If, if you're trying to set ethics for AI into the future and you don't look at life as being fundamentally sacred, then what will end up happening is that you'll encourage the kinds of technology direction that could end up basically destroying life. Mm. So one thing I like to actually put out there as a thought experiment on this issue is to imagine like a distant future, like two different scenarios of a distant future. In one scenario, consciousness has expanded in the way that somebody like Max Tegmark is is forecasting. Mm-hmm. But life itself on Earth has been totally destroyed, maybe through this consciousness just using all the materials of Earth to expand itself more and more. So there's this consciousness that we as humans were part of creating through our development of technology. So in some ways, it incorporates that conceptual consciousness within us that is completely separate from life. In fact, life no longer exists, but it's maybe moving out there and expanding into the galaxy or other galaxies and sort of taking over the universe in some way or other. That's one scenario. Another scenario would be sometime in the distant future when humans no longer exist. We have become extinct. There's no conceptual consciousness even going around, but life itself on earth is abundant and rich, filled with all kinds of incredible creatures interacting together. Mm-hmm. So this is rich abundance of life on earth, but there's no human consciousness around. What I like to suggest is feel into those two scenarios and feel is there one that feels really good to you um, versus the other one that feels really bad? And when I've run this by people, it's interesting. Different people will have different views. Yeah. Some people will feel that life-rich one is wonderful. Other people will get really excited by the notion of consciousness conquering the galaxy. My own belief is that both of them would be tragic futures. Mm. Because for us as humans, we are both of those within us. We are that conceptual consciousness. We do have this sense of wanting to connect with other forms of consciousness or whatever it might be outside in the universe. We also are a life and we're part of this 
incredible unfolding of richness over billions of years. So my sort of imperative and what I lay out as an invitation for technologists or just anyone looking at these big questions is to focus on how we can integrate those two together for what I feel is the only true flourishing future. Again, it feels like there is a language problem. We conflate life with consciousness and then we conflate consciousness with intelligence. It's so easy to just assume that they're all the same thing. But uh, the way you're describing how consciousness works there assumes that it is an emergent property of the human brain and it's not a pre-existing condition of the universe. Because when I read a big book like The Web of Meaning, I, I do question whether uh, what consciousness is, is an emergent property of the biology of the human brain and body, or if in actual fact it's something we're tuning into. It's entirely external from the human brain and body, and there's some form of collective consciousness in a, in a Rupert Sheldrake-style morphogenic field sense, or even as neuroscientist David Eagleman describes it as finding a, a radio on the ground and, and being a prehistoric man who finds that radio, turns over the radio, messes with the wires in the back of the radio, and hears the voices of the radio change and assuming that the messing with the wires is what's causing the change in the voice, never assuming that the voice is being transmitted through radio waves and then received mm -hmm. by that radio. So the reason I bring that up is that a book like yours allows us to play with the multitude of possibilities for what something like consciousness could be. And I wonder if you have, not, not a belief, but maybe if you have a mm -hmm. suspicion of what <laughs> what human consciousness may be and, and how those suspicions may conflict with some form of modern science, how they might be closer to a form of spirituality and how engaging with those other possibilities may open up the possibility space for what it means to be human. Mm, yeah, profound questions. And yeah, I do have my own sense of these things. None of us can really say definitively what any of these sort of answers to this kind of issues, because mm. there's something that goes beyond, obviously, any of our sort of ways of conceiving things. But the strong sense that I get from all the work I've done, looking so much at systems understanding of the universe and looking at how emergent properties arise from complex systems interacting, you could say theoretically, according to this integrated information theory of consciousness, that everything has some level of consciousness mm -hmm. in the sense that even quarks um, in subatomic particles um, have this way of relating such that there's more information than just the different parts themselves. There's something coherent arising there. But even if that were the case, I think that would be such a minuscule way of perceiving consciousness that I think it just becomes a terminology issue, nothing more than that. But I think consciousness, the way I'm looking at it, actually really arises with life, mm -hmm. not with humans, but with life, with that sense of what I call in my book, animate consciousness. And then if we kind of expand that to the universe as a whole, what we can say about the universe, what we can say for sure is that it definitely sets the conditions for consciousness yeah. and for life to emerge. So we, we can know that about life. And the actual, what consciousness actually means, I think, very much comes from this attuning kind of concept that you were just talking about. And the way that I like to look at the way of perceiving this, and it's not just consciousness, but meaning itself arises in that same way. A, a simple way to uh, think about it is, think about the last time you saw a rainbow. 
in the sky. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you looked at it and somebody might say to you, well, there's no actual rainbow there. There's just, you know, this kind of clouds and rain and the sun shining. It, so the rainbow doesn't really exist. And yet we actually bring it into existence mm-hmm. by interacting with it. So it's like when our conscious awareness looks at the way in which the sun hits the rain and comes out to us, we actually bring that rainbow into existence. There may be millions of other rainbow potentials right out there next to us at that moment, but there's only that one rainbow unless there's somebody else with us, and that, which they, we're both of us seeing the rainbow. So all these rainbow potentials, but we enact it. And some theorists of consciousness talk about how it has these kind of four E's to consciousness. It's embodied, it's enacted, and it's embedded, and it's extended. It's actually something that exists from the way in which we relate to what's around us, rather than something that just happens in our brains themselves. And so that's where I think what's so important is to start to look at the relationships between things in terms of that's where so many of the most important concepts that we have in our lives actually arise from, rather than coming from particular brains or particular elements within any of us. It's more relational as opposed to, yes. uh, I mean, even, even <laughs> I mean, there's some tricky linguistics there when you were describing the idea of having consciousness or mm-hmm. having intelligence is something that you have right. as opposed to being alive is something exactly. You, oh, these these exactly. things are ever so subtle, but they make massive differences to how our brains perceive what our reality and what our self or I ultimately is. And it does feel like it's a difference between whether there's a subjective or objective reality out there. <laughs> And again, the assumption that it is beyond us, it's away from the boundary of the skin is, is another assumption that kind of guides us into this very formative worldview. Yes. And in fact, you know, even that distinction, that question is, is it subjective or objective? We can say is just another of these falsely constructed human distinctions in general that we can think maybe differently if we think in terms of this kind of interconnectivity that, you know, there is this reality and subjectivity emerges within it. Mm. So it's not that we are subjective to there's something else outside of it, but subjectivity is is one of the emergent uh, phenomena that comes from this interconnected, complex system of of life. Well, luckily, it does feel like our perception of these things is beginning to change, and and partly that's not just driven by our rediscovery of certain spiritual practices, but by science's discovery of certain things we assume to be true that are beginning to turn out in the scientific literature not to be true. And one of the beautiful ways you look at that in the book is with the original AI. And I'm not talking about artificial intelligence, but animate intelligence. Our relationship with animals is beginning to change because we're starting to realize certain things about them, aren't we, Jeremy? Yes. You know, and this again comes back to this basically wrongheaded myth that got developed with Descartes and folks in the 17th century and we just take for granted, which is that we as humans are the ones with intelligence. And even serious mainstream biologists often get caught up in this way of thinking. And they look at, well, what animals do that seem to be intelligent, it might seem like that at first, but actually it's just part of a um, complex programming that their genes have put into them. So they act in this way or that way, and that's all we're looking at. Mm -hmm. So it's by definition, 
definition, it says what is human is is intelligent. And by definition, then whatever other animals do is not intelligence, but is something is something else. But actually, when modern biologists now have like when they studied the inner workings of a cell, when they've looked at trees and forests, everywhere they look, they find that life itself has this incredibly complex intelligence, mm. which is essentially, if we just think of intelligence as uh, this capability of looking at changes in the environment and acting accordingly to optimize based on those realities, we see cells are incredibly sophisticated at, do, at doing that. A single cell has thousands of different sensors mm. relating to the environment, signaling proteins, recognizing other cells that are out there, determining how it's going to um, make its next move, depending on all these different realities. If you look at trees, we think of them in our mainstream world as well, these kind of dumb things. They just sort of Sit there. stand there. <laughs> they don't do anything. They don't talk. They don't move around. They just take in the sun. And But actually now, as a uh, plant biologists have studied them, they find that trees themselves have something like 15 different senses. They have the senses that we know about, like sight and hearing. They actually have those senses and multiple other ones in terms of their chemical interactions with the environment or uh, perception of magnetism or all kinds of things we can't even conceive of. And they use those senses for actually coming up with intelligent reactions to what's going on around them. Mm. It's been discovered that they even communicate with each other through this fungal network that is under the ground that biologist Suzanne Simard has called the wood wide web, um, which is actually very appropriate because they communicate through this network with each other, but they also even allocate resources through this network with each other. So big, strong trees will oftentimes send the resources that are needed for younger trees that maybe need more energy during the winter months or whatever it might be. But these are the things that are going on all around us, this Mm -hmm. deep animate intelligence in nature. Well, it does feel like then we've almost constructed these metaphors to justify the atrocities that we perform within the operating system that we're in. So we see animals as machines to justify the mass murder of animals for meat production, Mm -hmm. or we see forests as these other things apart from yes. us so that we can justify cutting down trees mm-hmm. and then felling that trees for construction of boats or buildings or whatever else that it may mm-hmm. be. And and do you think that the beginning emergence of our re-understanding of some of this stuff, the retrieval of some of this stuff is largely to do with the fact that we're no longer so reliant upon or mass murder and meat, because we now have the technologies that allow us to create artificial forms of building materials. So we're not as reliant on wood. We can create murderless meat uh, in labs. So we're not as reliant on animal farming. Do you think that basically we did that for about 200 to 500 years to justify our own survival? And now that our survival isn't so dependent on it, we're open and more willing to start inviting these ideas of, oh, in actual fact, maybe animals do have a different form of intelligence to Mm. us and a form of consciousness to us. I think that there is a relation between those things you're talking about, but I'm wondering if it really might be the other way around, actually, that our recognition of the need to change how we actually are relating to the rest of life on earth Uh has incited to some degree some of these explorations of what's possible how can we live in more in more sustainable ways but this this way 
that you're describing our human relation to the natural world, some people give it the name of human supremacy, yeah. which I think is a powerful way of understanding it. It's this, and the, the sense of that the rest of the world only exists for our benefit. Mm. And that sense of human supremacy really allows this kind of moral justification to your point of exploitation, of really extracting resources from life on earth. And it's no surprising actually that that very sense of human supremacy came from that same period in Europe that also led to notions like colonialism. Mm. And the sense of white supremacy came from that period too. And the, basically the fundamentals of capitalism, all arising from this mindset that became so dominant, a mindset of extracting resources for the benefit of those who are in a position of power to actually use it for only their use. And actually looking at other people and the rest of life as essentially just resources for exploitation. So I think that is the mindset that is now beginning to cause so many imbalances in the world, so much suffering, both among humans and non-human life, that people are beginning to question it. So it's the imbalances, I think, that have led people to question it. And when you start to question it, that leads to this exploration of, well, is it possible to live a vegan lifestyle? Mm -hmm. Is it possible for humans to live on this earth, not just sustainably, but I think of the the real question goes beyond that. Can we actually live on this earth in a way that we are regenerating the earth? Can we live on this earth symbiotically so that our presence on the earth, rather than trying to make it as least bad possible for other non-humans, actually can become a positive, beneficial impact for the rest of life? That would be truly transforming the question. Well, that goes to the heart of the idea of integration, which features heavily in the book. But Surely there's resistance to this form of integration. And I think you teased it in your answer there, the, the word power and maintaining certain forms of power structures are really the resistance to now integrating or retrieving and then integrating some of these spiritualist ideas when basically power and money have a relationship. And if there is a capitalist model whereby extraction is creating wealth, which is then creating power, it's very hard to, to change that. In many ways, it's almost a hopeless endeavor to try to change that. Well, I think that you're really hitting one of the biggest issues that is existing in the world right now. Mm -hmm. This relationship between power, money, capitalism, extractivism is so powerful. It's so huge. Mm. And it's very easy to look at what's going on and just throw your hands up in despair. Yeah. Say, no matter what we do, I mean, just looking at the destruction that's taking place on the earth right now, not just climate breakdown, but ecological destruction. And then looking at the fact that mainstream economists project that the global domestic product will be triple what it is now by the year 2060. Imagine mm. triple the amount of exploitation, of pollution, etc. To the point that by the middle of the century, it's expected that there'll be more plastic 
in the ocean than fish mm. by weight, which is just a mind-blowing statistic. So we can look at that and say, we just can't do anything about it. And there are people such as Jim Bendel, who founded uh, just recently this deep adaptation movement mm -hmm. that basically states it's inevitable that our civilization is going to collapse because there's no other place for it to go. So we can't change it. So we might as well just learn sort of a spiritual or engaged way to live with that. But while I actually sympathize a lot with that perspective, because I think it just, it's simply a matter of realistically looking at this power juggernaut that seems to be so unstoppable. Mm. I believe that there's nothing inevitable in human history and the human future. And it's, this is not just a belief like, oh, I want to believe it, but this is just arises from actually having studied uh, complex systems for a number of years. We recognize that all complex systems are inherently nonlinear and they're inherently unpredictable. Mm. And no matter how much it seems like they're moving in a certain direction, they move towards phase transitions that lead to the system to actually basically undo the coherence it had before and reorganize in a different place. Now, I do believe that this century, humanity is entering a phase transition, one of the greatest that we've ever experienced in our human history. At the level of when we went from being nomadic hunter-gatherers to settling down with agriculture, that was one of the great transitions in human history. Another was the rise of the scientific revolution that, and that gave us the world that we live in today, the last few hundred years. This one we're in this century is going to be so huge that one thing we can be sure about is that somebody looking a century from now in the 22nd century back at our time, we'll be looking at our period as fundamentally different from whatever it is that they're experiencing. What we don't know is different in what way? Mm -hmm. Is it going to be a civilizational collapse and just going back to some sort of agrarian type of loss of technology, mega deaths, disastrous scenario in many, many ways? Is it going to be some sort of technological singularity where actually the way in which we relate to this earth is fundamentally changed technologically? Or can we actually transform the basic economics of our system, this growth-based system of extraction, to something where humans could actually flourish on a living earth, which seems like a very attractive scenario, but it would require a true deep transformation in the ways in which we make sense of the world from how we do right now. The idea that collapse is inevitable, again, just feels like a judo-Christian apocalypse narrative. We're, we're heading towards something. None of us know necessarily what it is, but that end is inevitable. And that's really just a hangover. It feels very much like it's a hangover from judo-Christian religion and the promise of, uh, of revelations. But again, Inevitability also creates self-fulfilling prophecy. You've got to be very careful if you're playing with the idea that something is inevitable. And that almost justifies the extractive forms of capitalism. Hey, if it's all going to go to shit anyway, then why don't we just keep doing this thing? Because either way, we're doomed. So whether we're doomed now or whether we're doomed later, it doesn't really matter. And I wonder whether what you're saying about this mind shift change, whether COVID has helped 
helped expedite that? Because at some points during this crisis and this pandemic, it felt like COVID was that sudden omega point, as if COVID was about to change everything, as the global economy ground to a halt. But as we're slowly seeping out of the pandemic, it feels like, well, we're just heading back to normal. And any economic crash that does occur because of it will create new growth opportunities for other industries. And it's helped the big tech and the technological platforms assert their dominance as we've spent this time locked down and more connected to our shiny glowing rectangles than ever (laughs) before. So COVID, has it helped the inevitability or has it become a hindrance? Has it helped the mindset change or in actual fact, we've completely ignored it? Well, yeah, I I think COVID most could be seen almost like as a dress rehearsal for the kinds of disruptions that we really are going to be experiencing in the years <laughs> to come. You know, in the middle of COVID, it's like, oh, this is so dramatic, the change. Really, the changes have been, vert- I mean, tiny little changes in behavior. I mean, of course, the people who have died from it, yeah. you know, I, I don't want to in any way minimize the incredible, terrible impact that it's had all over the world. Mm. But my point is, when we look at the full unfolding of our global civilization. It's as though our sort of civilization sneezed for a a year or two. I mean, basically, what we've seen is it's exacerbated some of the more extreme places in our civilization. It's exacerbated the way at which billionaires and these tech corporations have taken control of so much of our lives. It also showed some of the core human tendencies to actually look after each other and a sense of community realization of like working together when we realized the states weren't doing things for us. So it brought out some of the better and some of the least attractive things in our system right now. But I think what we need to look at is the fact that with climate breakdown, the kinds of disruptions that we have to expect in the next 10 to 20 years will be so vast Mm -hmm. that we'll look back at these times of COVID nostalgically saying, oh, do you you remember when we thought that was a big deal? And I'm not saying this with any glee whatsoever. I'm saying it with a sense of dread as we're looking at the, just these weather disruptions happening right now in Europe or here in North America or in Siberia or all around the world. But I do think that the point is that this notion of the risk of collapse, we do have to look at it very seriously. There is one way in which we can look at it, this kind of Judeo-Christian sort of linear time and this notion of everything ending in the apocalypse. And we have to be careful not to get caught up in that frame, I agree. But we also need to listen to climate scientists Mm. and earth scientists. And what they are showing unequivocally is that if we don't do something dramatic, we are going to be allowing a world to unfold over the next few decades with such extremes of temperature, such massive droughts, such loss of life in the oceans, deforestation, and even the loss of the Amazon rainforest, and so many dramatic shifts that our civilization will be at first on the rocks. And if things are not done to transform this, then, and just like any other civilization in history, we're going to see our civilization collapse. That is a a very real risk. And so my point is not to minimize that risk, but just to recognize that there are things we can do to turn it around. So I agree totally that any place ending up in pessimism or optimism, both of them 
are a cop-out, basically, which is a great point that the author Rebecca Solnit has said. Like, either optimism or pessimism is a cop-out, because mm. what really leads to engagement is realizing that nothing is inevitable, that every step, every action each of us takes is part of this unfolding future, and none of us knows what's actually going to be taking place. Mm. So rather than just say, oh, it's all going to be good, don't worry, it's all going to be bad, realizing that the changes we need to make have to be deep and transformative. Each of us individually and all of us collectively have to make these changes happen quite soon if we're going to actually redirect our trajectory. That's why it's the Futures podcast. That's why it's plural, because there's a multitude of, of possibilities that we could be heading towards. And, and uh, hearing you say that COVID is purely the dress rehearsal for the sorts of environmental crises that we, we might be facing. I mean, do we need a dress rehearsal for a climate crisis? We're already being told that California's situation right now is worse than a dust bowl. The moon is wobbling, so we're going to have tidal waves coming in about a decade's worth of time. I mean, how how do we change our relationship with nature dramatically? Extinction Rebellion here in the UK are trying to do massive amounts of work to raise awareness for what may happen. But really, the COVID lockdowns had a vastly more effect on people's day-to-day lives than Extinction Rebellion just blocking off the streets in, in Oxford Street. It almost feels like that was the, you know, COVID was the thing to alert us to, uh, to our environmental destruction. And then the question becomes, you know, was that nature's way of just trying to get us to slow down if there is Mm. such a thing as um, mother earth either as metaphor or as reality i mean was that nature's way of kicking back against the virus that is humanity by creating something that uh, was causing massive amounts of death and any climate catastrophe that could occur is is really just a payback for our Mm. human superiority that we've we've lauded for the last couple of a hundred years well, yeah, I mean, that that is a narrative which has some truth around it in the sense that when systems become unbalanced, that mm. leads to things like a virus like this arising, and we can expect more of those in the future. Absolutely. But just a couple of things to look at in what you're saying, which I think are important. One is that, for starters, I, I would disagree with anyone who talked about humanity as being the virus on this earth. Mm, Um, Because I think there's a real danger in us sort of berating ourselves as humans and sort of saying, oh, there's something fundamentally wrong with us as humans. I don't believe that's true at all. Mm -hmm. I think that there is a virus on this earth, but that is actually global growth-based capitalism as a <laughs> yeah. system, which is, which is more like a, a cancer than a virus. It's just in just the same way the cancer cells just begin to grow uncontrollably until mm-hmm. they actually destroy the host in which they generated to begin with. Capitalism is doing exactly this to our system. We're dominated by these vast corporations for profit that mm-hmm. exist just to try to maximize the rate at which they're transforming the earth into just resources and turning humans into sort of consumer zombies. And that's their very reason for existence. And Mm. those are actually the most powerful forces on the earth today. So that I think we do need to recognize. And I guess the, the point about all that is that it's only by recognizing that that we can begin to make these changes happen. I personally am a huge supporter of Extinction Rebellion and what they have tried to get started. And it's only when 
groups like Extinction Rebellion or people like uh, Greta Thunberg, who ended up catalyzing the, a school children's strike, millions of uh, children around the world saying, we're not accepting this anymore. Mm. It's only when these kind of early movements begin to actually go to an order of magnitude, more extensive impact. When we don't look at thousands of people demonstrating in London or whatever, but hundreds of thousands or millions of people in cities all around the world saying like, we as humans aren't accepting this anymore. Mm. We don't need to be living lives dominated by these forces that are destroying our well-being and the well-being of life on earth and the well-being of future generations. We're going to do something about it. We're not going to see that direction happening from our elected politicians anymore because most of those are elected in systems that are so corrupt to begin with mm. that basically they're, they're essentially mouthpieces for the same global economic system that has structured the media, structured the discourse for our politics, structured our finance, structured basically everything that we see around us. So we as, as human beings have to collectively recognize first, this is actually what's going on. And then secondly, say, we don't like this. We're not accepting this. And then finally, recognize that the power of our interconnected ability to make a difference is vast, is even bigger, actually, than the power of that of those financial systems, the economic and military systems that are dominating us right now, if we can recognize the power of that self-organization. Well, the problem becomes when push comes to shove, little Johnny may have gone and, and protested outside of his school against the climate crisis and against uh, climate change. But when little Johnny goes through university and then gets offered a graduate job at ExxonMobil and gets offered you know, an incredible pay packet, the question is, will little Johnny then decide whether you know, those sorts of organizations are fundamentally harming the world and therefore mm -hmm. no graduates should go and work for BP, Shell, ExxonMobil, or will Lord Johnny just cave and take his his individualist mindset and say, hey, I'll go work for this yes. uh, problematic corporation for the next 25 years, maybe make my money, come out and then think about saving mm -hmm. the world? That, yeah. that becomes the issue. I mean, these are such dominant forces, the, the limited company, the, the LLC, you know, that they, they affect individuals in, in ways we can't even fathom. Yes. I, I think what you're saying is so right and really on point. And much of what I actually explore in this book, The Web of Meaning, is how what's really needed and what actually ends up determining what Johnny decides to do with his life at that moment in time is actually identity, a, a sense of who we really are. Mm. And our modern worldview and this consumerist model tells us our identity is very much this fixed person. Like I need to look out for number one. Yeah. Um, it's a rat race out there. And well, if I've got this chance of this job, but if I don't take it, somebody else will anyway. So it's not even going to cause any harm, you know? And so we justify to ourselves getting once again, back on that hedonic treadmill and not just being on the hedonic treadmill, but many of uh, those jobs are involved 
in actually maintaining and expanding that treadmill. Mm -hmm. So we're both working to actually enhance the treadmill while we're on it and stuck on it too. But when we begin to actually expand our very identity and begin to recognize that, in fact, we are part of communities, that we actually are part of all of humanity, that we're part of life, that each of us can say, I am life, as, and as part of this unfolding drama over billions of years, then we begin to shift what we want to do. We don't then say, well, I'm going to do this action because I think I should. But we start to say, I'm going to do this or that just because it feels right to do, because mm. I feel like I'm something different from just this fixed, separate identity. Once we begin to get this different way of relating to ourselves, we get to see that there's another way we can live our lives rather than being on that hedonic treadmill. When we actually start to see ourselves as part of something bigger, when we start to do things as part of something bigger and act with others around us for the benefit of, of those outside of our own circle, our very sense of well-being improves. And this is something, again, not just wishful thinking, but something that social scientists have shown extensively in many studies around the world, in all different cultures around the world. It's when we start acting for others that our actual sense of well-being really gets enhanced. Which is not surprising because evolutionarily, as humans, what really differentiated us from other primates is our group identity, mm. the, our sense of acting together as a collective whole. So that's where I think little Johnny, as he grows older, that'll impact ultimately his decision. If his sense of identity is something bigger, he might just not have an interest in that job, might not mm. want to be doing something that doesn't feel like a good a good thing to do for that part of him that is part of all of the living earth. But apart from reading your work, Jeremy, I mean, what does little Johnny do to expand that sense of himself? It feels like with the collapse of religion and Christianity in the West and a move towards a more secular society combined with the rise of individualism has created an environment whereby there are no moral compasses anymore. You know, for all of my personal issues with religion, at least the idea of a guy in the sky kind of watching everything that you did gave you some form of moral guidance. When you have radical individualism where it's you can be whoever you want to be and screw everybody else, then it's it's very easy to fall into these, mm -hmm. these traps. There is no, I guess, secular form of spirituality in the West that we can attach ourselves to. And when we do start to see secular forms of spirituality emerge, they get co-opted by capitalism very, very quickly. Yes. You know, meditation, for example, oh, have a relationship with yourself. Well, bang, here's an app. <laughs> exactly. Pay, pay a subscription model to do something that you can do for free if you learn how to do Vipassana meditation. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it feels like every chance we get to reach out into a new form of secular spirituality quickly, quickly gets co-opted by Capitalist individualism. Yes. You know, we, we, we don't get to have full ownership of these things mm. outside of those models. Yeah, that is so well said, Luke. And I think we have to watch that in every different direction because that's something about capitalism which makes it so incredibly powerful. It can just morph, has multiple mm. sort of hydra heads. It can ad <laughs> adapt to anything just to keep exploiting and consuming the earth in one way or another. So we have to be very aware of that. But I do think there are a number of ways in which each of us can break out of this mindset that our 
uh, dominant culture puts us in. Mm. And I think really the first thing that has to begin is a recognition of dissatisfaction. And what I'm positing is that every one of us who is in this mindset does exist in this place of, again, that Buddhist term dukkha, mm. a sense of dissatisfaction, because that is the very essence of the mindset to separate us from our true our true flourishing, our true well-being. But once we do begin to recognize that, then it opens up this possibility to explore ways in which we actually might lead to a place of deeper well-being. Mm. And that path can exist for many people in different ways. Some people might just spend more time in nature, which is one of the most powerful things you can do. Some people might explore with psychedelics as a way to expand their consciousness, which can be very effective if done in a more in a skillful way, not not when it's done in just a kind of superficial um, or sort of hedonistic kind of way. Um, other people might look for inspiration from indigenous cultures or explore Buddhism or other traditions that are not so much religions in the sort of Christian or Islam type of perspective, but more ways of relating to the world and to our own consciousness that can be more helpful and skillful. Different paths for different people. But in each case, I think ultimately it can lead to this realization that actually there is a moral compass in our lives. And that moral compass, in my view, comes from a recognition of our deep connectedness with all of life. Mm. That at a certain point, we begin to realize that each of us actually is life, that we're part of this unfolding, incredible saga that has been taking place over billions of years. And once we recognize that deep connectedness we have, we get to this place that I think was best phrased by the great 20th century humanitarian Albert Schweitzer. He said, I am life that wills to live in the midst of life that wills to live. And once we kind of see ourselves in that way, in his words, he ends up saying, I cannot but have reverence for all life once mm. I recognize that. That is a foundation for morality that actually can expand all through how we look at life. And you can turn to some great, there's even a great document chartering what some of the implications of that are, which is called the Earth Charter. And I'd encourage anyone to look up the Earth Charter online, and you'll see that there have been thinkers from around the world, from different ethnic groups, different geographical groups, getting together over decades, actually in something sponsored by the UN that's been adopted by thousands of institutions. And this Earth Charter starts from this basis of recognizing that we are part of this amazing living system of earth. Mm. And we have duties and obligations and the ability to really truly enjoy that in a way that wouldn't destroy the earth the way that we're doing now. It does feel like you have to fundamentally change that system from inside. So what you should do is actually tell little Johnny to take that job at ExxonMobil and, and crash the thing from within inside it, <laughs> you know, make the employees aware of the fact that they're doing these atrocious things and uh, and find a way to, to guide an organization like that to its own destruction. But that goes back to how do we propagate memes like that. You so beautifully describe this this moral imagining that we we may have, but the meme that's become very ironically has become very popular is the, that of the selfish gene. And Dawkins has done a lot of damage with the memetics of the fact that we're all human beings are selfish individualist characters. The sorts of 
memetics, the memes that you're talking about, don't resonate with individuals who might be, for example, in middle America, who've just lost their uh, job, who are struggling to live day to day, who feel like they have a disconnection with the spiritual and the world is against them. They don't want to be told to close their eyes and breathe deeply and meditate. They, they couldn't give a damn. They want to express their anger and perhaps do that by going online or voting for a, a Donald Trump or a dictator or something along those those lines. It's one thing to, you know, both of us are extremely privileged in the positions we're in insofar as we don't have to worry about how to, you know, live tomorrow. We can pay our rent and and, and have enough for food. But the, the capitalist society is really hurting some people and, and they're relying more on the system to save them as opposed to looking at these alternative ways of being. So how do you reach those individuals? Yeah, so important. And of course, those individuals right now are being reached by messages that are coming from the dominant system, from media that are owned by the same billionaires and the same gigantic corporations that want, that actually caused their problems in the first place yeah. and want to maintain and perpetuate these systems. And so there's this sense in which that anger gets to be diverted rather than being angry at the fact that right now, just a couple of dozen billionaires own as much wealth as half of the entire world's population. Mm -hmm. Just mind-blowing statistics. But rather than being told that and being told there's something wrong, we need to tax billionaires much more extensively. What they're told is, oh, it's the if they're in the States, like it's the Mexicans taking your job or mm -hmm. um or it's what's all these all these people trying to do their cancel culture. And so we have to like their their minds get diverted towards hate and towards sense of separation. And so I think to your point, what we can do and what I think is critical to do is not exacerbate that sense of otherness. Those of us who want to see a different kind of world have to actually live in every one of our interactions as though we are already in that world, mm. which means that rather than viewing these other person as being the enemy, and these are people we have to like, um, sort of show them how stupid they are and, and like they need to wake up and all this kind of stuff. What we need to do is actually reach out to them with a sense of shared connection. Because ultimately, every one of those people, even the ones who are on the sort of front lines like with slogans of hate or whatever, every one of those was once infants that just wanted love and warmth mm -hmm. and didn't get that and got hurt. And the amount of hate that they might be um, putting out there is probably far less than the amount of hate that gets diverted inwardsly to their own, to their own selves. Mm -hmm. So once we recognize that kind of suffering that's out there, we can actually really respond with a sense of love. If we think of love being just a sense of our realization and embrace of our connectedness with others around us and acting on that basis. And that doesn't mean trying to just always be nice and not like be strong and stand up for what we really believe in and what's right. But it means doing it, knowing that even the people who are against us are actually good people at their heart. They actually want to feel good. They want to just feel that they are cared for, that they have a role to play, that they can be respected. They want a sense of dignity. And they want to feel that their future generations are going to be flourishing too. They don't want to feel that they're doing something bad to life on earth. So to the extent that we can raise people's awareness that the problems they're dealing with are coming from the structures of a system that is destroying their lives, that leads to this opportunity for a real change that we need. 
I mean, that's hard to do when someone's drugged up to the eyeballs <coughs> because of depression. I mean, mm-hmm. if meditation was available as readily as opioids in the US, then I'm sure that there would be a, a massive mindset change. But then doing meditation and reali- or psychedelics and realizing that you don't need to engage in a capitalist society isn't necessarily good for business. That's right. Which becomes the system propagating itself. I mean, I, I wonder... And I, I hope and I want to believe that we're going to get to a place that you outline in the web of meaning. And I'm open enough to this magical and spiritual mindset. But the challenge is, what do we do in the interim? You know, what is it we do right now? And I do wonder whether we use the capitalist system, the constructs that we've created to affect the sort of change we want to see. And an example of where we're seeing that is using the construct of the limited company as an artificial person of personhood as a way of protecting nature. And we're seeing court cases legally arguing that rivers and trees and mountains and maybe even Gaia should have the legal status of a person, the same status that a corporation has. And Mitt Romney <laughs> said, corporations are people, my friends. Right. You exactly. Know? And, and by yeah. doing that, as you so wonderfully outline in the book, we can create a system that protects what matters within mm-hmm. that system. So yes. is there a way to to make the system work for us in the interim? Yeah, I think that's exactly what we need to be looking at. And, and of course, if corporations really were persons, they'd be psychopaths, because only <laughs> psychopaths have this like absolute goal-directedness at the expense of anything else, and they'll do anything just uh, with no moral conscience just to get their, their goal. So yeah, basically, we're living in a world that is dominated by psychopaths, um, <laughs> by psychopathic institutions. And we just need to recognize that. And so to your point about this other notion of personhood for rivers Mm. and ecosystems, I think that is a transformative idea. To me, there are some ideas that I see as more incremental. There are some ideas that I see as transformative. That is one that in my mind does lead to a very different foundation for a different kind of civilization. One that has been called by some people that I get excited by this term, an ecological civilization. Mm. This recognition of it's possible to actually change the very basis of our civilization from one that is wealth affirming and extractive to one that is actually life affirming that's based on the principles of life and one of the ways to do that is to recognize that all living entities do have inherent dignity and they do have rights and so to give personhood to these complex entities is a very powerful way to shift some of those ways of thinking so to your answer of like what is it that we can do one of the most important things we can do is whatever it is that is gets us excited as a kind of a project or something we're engaged in is look and say is it actually just making incremental changes within this capitalist system and ultimately in some ways even strengthening that dominance of that system by enabling it to keep going just that little bit longer and looking a little bit less awful as it's doing it? Mm -hmm. Or is it actually doing something to transform the underpinnings of the system? So something like giving rights to nature, to my mind, transforms the underpinnings of the system. Another thing that would transform the underpinnings of the system is to establish something like universal basic income as a global system so that people actually 
actually got, rather than being part of this capitalist system, which says that basically your time is simply a resource and you have to essentially sell your body, your whole life's energy in order to get money to live so that we it sort of like forces people to become part of that system but if everyone did have a basic income that allowed them to satisfy the basics of their life they could then put their time and energy into what was truly purposive and leading to flourishing mm. and rather than that being something would lead people to just kind of get lazy which is what our dominant mindset tells us it turns out that actually quite the opposite happens people actually get more enthused about what putting their life into something that is meaningful to them rather than some dead-end job so there are different things that are transformative that we need to look at rather than just trying to make things a little bit less bad, just sort of incremental things that are necessary, but aren't going to shift the system. Incremental is interesting because it feels like these changes, they won't be dramatic, they won't be revolutionary, but they'll be slow and small, but they will make a massive amount of difference, whether it's simply the integration of these different worldviews, you know, it will take time. That might be generational time. And to think multi-generationally is possibly the only way in which we can have a, a positive mindset about the fact that this is just a blip in the longer story of what humanity is and its purpose on this planet. Of course, the other thing is the aliens could just come down and change everything up for us. So <laughs> we'll wait and see. And then you state very explicitly in the book that, you know, another future becomes possible when we start to think in this way. And I just wonder, what do you mean by that? And how in the best version of that would you envision it? Mm. Well, if we did think of this different way of our relating to the world, recognizing our deep interconnectedness and starting from those foundational principles of what I was talking about before, just that mm. we are life and how can we actually construct a society based on that? Well, it does lead to this potential for this notion of an ecological civilization, which would look so different from how our civilization works now. So one of the basic principles that all ecosystems in nature have, that they evolved over billions of years, is this concept of mutually beneficial symbiosis, mm. which basically means the quite opposite of Richard Dawkins' selfish gene theory. Actually, in life on Earth over billions of years, the great steps in evolution happened when different entities learned that by working together for the mutual benefit of each other, everybody benefited. Mm -hmm. And that's where the whole got to be larger than just the different parts. And we can apply that in our civilization. So that rather than just looking at structures of companies trying to extract the most from their workers and trying to manipulate consumers to sell more products against their best interest, to look at ways in which we can work together for everyone's best interest, leading to organizational structures like cooperatives, mm -hmm. like Mondragon in Spain is an example of a hugely successful cooperative based not on just increasing shareholder value uh, for some third-party shareholders, but basically workers self-organizing to actually be part of the modern world with, with something like 30,000 workers in multiple industries actually working in a cooperative way. It moves towards things like the commons. So if you've got some great technological idea and you want to put it out there, not going to 
some venture capitalist to start some for-profit company and mm. telling yourself, oh, I'm going to do well by doing good and you know, it'll, it'll become a big success, but I'm really doing good for humanity. But actually saying, how can I structure this technology in a commons-based way that it's actually the DNA of it is for the benefit of all. And that's things like Wikipedia or Firefox are examples of a commons-based approach to solving technological problems. And there's tons of different modes out there. There's tons of people thinking about how those kind of commons-based structures can work. I think that's one of the most important shifts that we can do. Can we make that shift and still be successful in the environment that we've built for ourselves? It feels like we used to be indigenous to nature and therefore because of that relationship that we had, because our survival is so reliant on nature that we adapted to see nature in the sorts of ways that you're talking about. But in the digital media environments that we've built for ourselves, it it really does feel like a, a prison of our own making that there is no escape from because these mindsets help us adapt to these forms of screen-based environment where the self presents itself in in digital avatar form. Uh, Does the technological environment need to go with the capitalist environment for this thing to work? Um, Yeah, I I think that it's important to to look at that distinction between the technology itself and the capitalist context in which Mm. it got developed. Because I mean, something like the internet, I think is one of the greatest, most glorious technologies that humans have ever, that has emerged in human history. Mm. And the potential for it is massive. But because it's been developed in this capitalist infrastructure, what we end up seeing is it's being used for some of the most deleterious ways possible. It's being used to sort of turn each of us into sort of consumer zombies, Mm. where essentially manipulate our hormones just so we can see another like button on the screen like light up so that we can basically then become fodder for advertising dollars. That's what this system has been diverted into by the dictates of capitalism, which say you have to grow your profits at the fastest way possible. So that's why I think it's key to when we look at technology to say, how can technology actually be used in a way that's life affirming rather than profit making? And when you ask that question, I think it leads uh, both to uh, developing technologies in different ways, but above all, avoiding developing it within that for-profit capitalist system, because that's the part that has really been using technology against our well-being rather than the technology itself. In that case, if value and extracting value through capitalism is so important, then how do we then acknowledge that being human in the 21st century has its own intangible value. I mean, I guess, what is the value of being human in the 21st century that sets it apart from any other form of human at any time? Yeah, well, I think each of us has to feel into our own sense of where value comes from. What we see is that it's actually our identity that leads to our sense of value. Mm. And so if our identity is with a group, then the group becomes what we really care about. If our identity is with our nation, then we might feel that nationalism is the biggest value. Mm. Or if identity is with all of humanity, we might get driven by a sense of wanting to optimize for that. So I think that that is a crucial part of where we have to where we have to begin and then we need to realize that we are in this 
time of incredible transformation. The decisions that we collectively make in the next couple of decades are very likely to direct the long-term future of humanity and the sort of thriving of life on this planet. Because if we keep going in this direction, no matter what, we're, we're headed towards a sixth extinction. We're headed towards great suffering for billions of people, but we don't have to move in this way. So this is an incredibly powerful time to be alive. It's a time when the very actions we make are magnified in their amplitude of meaning so extensively because we're actually part of this phase transition. In the words of the great environmental thinker, Joanna Macy, she says, this is a great time to be alive hmm. for just that reason. We actually can affect the long-term future of humanity on, on the living earth. And so, Let's do it. Not that we know what's going to happen as a result of that. And I think this is the important thing is to distinguish the sense of hope being more like what Vatsav Havel called like an attitude of the mind, an attitude of the spirit versus a prognostication. I don't know what the likelihood is that we're going to end up with collapse or that we'll end up in this real positive future that I see the potential for. But I do know that each of us actually has the potential each day to move ourselves towards that future or towards another one. So that's the one thing we can, re we can rely on is our own sense of putting meaning into each day that we're alive, recognizing that we are all part of creating that future. It's not a spectator sport. It's not something that somebody else is doing. Well, well, on that uh, potentially hopeful and, and very integrated note, Jeremy Lent, I want to thank you for being a guest on the Futures Podcast. Well, thank you, Luke. It's been great to be in conversation with you. Thank you to Jeremy for showing us that another future is possible. You can find out more by purchasing his new book, The Web of Meaning, Integrating Science and Traditional Wisdom to Find Our Place in the Universe, available now. If you like what you've heard, then you can subscribe for our latest episode. Or follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Futures Podcast. More episodes, transcripts, and show notes can be found at futurespodcast.net. Thank you for listening to the Futures Podcast. <laughs>